Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Hey, folks, what's the connection between meditation and condiments? We're going to get into that this week. That's what we call teas in the business. We're going to talk about that coming up. But uh, first, one quick item of business and then your calls. Uh, The item of business is um, I want to promote something that I think you guys will like that is a new uh, a new offering from one of our former guests here, Manoush Zamarodi, who's who was great guest. Uh, she was previously the host of a, po- a great podcast called Note to Self, which is all about our relationship with technology. And and so she came on a few months ago, and I got, we got a lot of response to um, to her uh, interview. And uh, she uh, is now uh, hosting a new podcast called Zigzag. I have not heard it yet, but I have nothing but faith that it will be awesome. So uh, check out her and her co-host, Jen, talking about all things having to do um, with our relationship to technology and more. So that's uh, that's the item of business out of the way. Let's do the phone calls. But here's my caveat, which you you may be tired of hearing, but I'm going to say it anyway, which is uh, I'm not a mental health expert or a meditation teacher. I haven't heard these calls in advance, so I just do my best to answer based on my limited experience. Here's call number one. Hey, Dan, this is Christine in Amsterdam, Netherlands. I am just calling because I have a bit of a problem in my meditation practice. I used to meditate every day, but I've fallen a bit off the wagon. And I think the problem is that I want it all. Uh, for example, I, I have been doing breathing meditation where I follow my breath. But then I also know about loving kindness meditation. And I want to try that. There's just so many different kinds of meditation and I want all the benefits and I am not really sure which one I should do. Um, and I was just curious. I know that you do several different kinds of meditation styles and I was curious if you have maybe a program the way you would at the gym where you have maybe a one day where you do loving kindness or one day where you're following your breath or maybe you do one in the morning or one in the evening. Your help would be Really great. Thank you so much, and thanks for all you do. I'm really thankful for the podcast. Have a great day. One of our first, uh, maybe there was one other before this, one of our first international calls. I love it. Um, and a great question, a really important question, because wanting it all is not unusual. We um, approach meditation, us type A strivers, the way we approach everything else in our life um, with a sort of voraciousness. And so I think you're to, to be applauded for for having the enthusiasm, um, but and foreseeing that it might be uh, hindering you, um, I generally speaking, um, what I recommend uh, for beginners is that there's a, a useful period of taste testing when you're looking at the different forms of meditation. Oh, I want to try. I want to try out a little bit of TM. Maybe I'll try mindfulness. Maybe I'll try uh, Tibetan Buddhist Zen. Uh, because there are a number of flavors. But a- after a while, I strongly urge you to pick one and go with it for a while. Because if you just think about it, it's like the scientific method. It's how you're going to know. You're not the only way you're going to be able to gather meaningful data is just by looking at your own mind over time. As I like to say to people, are you less of a jerk to yourself and others? That's my yardstick for knowing whether meditation is working. Uh, but the only way you're really going to get a sense of which practice is helping is to ultimately to land on one and stick with it. So 
that's what I would recommend. I think you've you you actually you're embedded in your question is the answer. I think you know that that uh, too much kind of running around uh, without a clear objective is is making you stuck. So I would say pick one and go with it. However, I would also say that the two options you listed, going with the breath and loving kindness, I actually, and this may be, I hope this isn't hard to understand, I actually think of those two as very much complementary and a pairing that can be used by somebody who's at your stage, which is, it seems to me, probably the beginner stage. So uh, it wouldn't, it, it, that pairing of, of mindfulness, watching your breath, then when you get distracted, start again, watch your breath, then when you get distracted, start again. That's that's the mi- basic mindfulness practice. And loving kindness practice, which is, we've discussed this many times in the podcast, a lot of people, when they first hear about it, myself included, think it sounds incredibly annoying. And it actually is a little bit annoying, but it does work. Um, we know this, I know this based on just personal experience, but also from looking at the science. Um, the practice is to kind of systematically envision various people, various, uh, even you can even throw in animals there and, and, and repeat these phrases of well-wishing. Um, th- those two uh, practices, uh, it w- that, that wouldn't be like trying to do basic mindfulness and also doing TM and also throwing in some Zen and Tibetan all at once. Those two practices uh, were taught in conjunction, is my understanding, by this dude known as the Buddha, you know, uh, millennia ago. So I, I would say if you want to start with those two, um, there is a way to do that, which is I just based on my own experience, the way I would structure it is um, maybe set up where you're going to do several months of try to do five to 10 minutes a day of the basic mindfulness. And then you can throw in a little round of meta either right there, stay there for a couple more minutes. Uh, metta is, by the way, that's the old Buddhist term for loving kindness meditation. That's the Pali term for uh, loving kindness. Uh, or you could do it as a separate but complementary thing at another point in the day, maybe literally with your head on the pillow before you go to bed. I actually think a round of loving kindness meditation where you are, again, systematically picturing people and sending them these, uh, you know, wishes like may you be well, may you be uh, sorry, may you be happy, may you be safe, et cetera, et cetera. As your head's on the pillow, actually, I, I suspect that could have a salutary effect on your sleep, um, both, both on your ability to go to sleep and uh, your dreams. So give that a try. And I, I think that's a pretty good way to get started. And I you can get these guided meditations uh, on places like the 10% Happier app that might help. Okay, next call. Hey, Dan, it's Mike uh, from Toronto calling. I've been meditating now for about a, a year, maybe two years, and here's my problem. Almost daily, somebody will say something, and I think to myself, oh, meditation would help with that. How do you stop from being, you know, almost like an ex-smoker or a jerk, keep telling people that, oh, I, I, I can solve that problem? You know, it happens with my wife. She's stressed. She's always looking at her phone, and I keep feel like saying, all you got to do is start meditating. And sometimes I do say that, and they look at me like, yeah, no, that, that won't solve the problem. And the problem is, it will solve the problem. But I don't want to keep telling people to keep meditating, but I'm always thinking it. How do you deal with that when you run up to it almost every day? Thanks, Dan. We're an all-international call-in show this week. It's a great question. Uh, some of you may have heard me talk about this before, um, but even if you have, I think it bears repeating, and it even bears repeating for me because you can't hear this enough. Uh, 
don't proselytize. It's really annoying, and it has a high, high likelihood, in my experience, of backfiring. And I say that, you know, I have a lot of scar tissue around this of having tried to, you know, get my wife to do it unsuccessfully, like deeply unsuccessfully uh, for a few months back when I first started meditating low these many years. Don't proselytize. It's as not only is it annoying, but it's like you're basically people hear it as uh, you're broken. So you need this big thing, meditation. Because non-meditators, they, they, I think they think, med- you know, starting a meditation habit is, sounds like a big project when, when in fact, you and I know it's not really. But th- there is, it's almost certainly not going to work. Your instinct of trying to help people is a, a laudable one. So I'm not criticizing you here. Definitely not criticizing you because um, this is a mistake I, too, have made. But, you know, and... Uh, and your instinct, you're trying to be useful and helpful. So good on you for that. But I I don't think, this is one man's opinion based on his limited experience, I don't think it's a good idea. I think that people are unlikely to take your advice. However, you can be useful, which is you can bring to bear the skills that are um, you are training through your own practice, which is being a good listener, handling the vexations and vicissitudes of life with greater ease and grace and using that behavior to model for other people who may ultimately, and this again is based on my own experience, come around to wanting a little bit of what you have. That's a much, that's a much better way to do it. I think is a higher likelihood of yielding the positive results. That doesn't mean it's not going to be frustrating for you to watch your wife stuck in on her phone uh, uh, or watching other people suffer and uh, and and you feel like your hands are tied behind your back because you don't want to uh, get in their face about meditation. But, you know, it's just almost certainly not going to work. So what's the point? Uh, so I think you're going to have to be mindful of that frustration and let it go and find other um Find other moves to make. And again, I think your practice is really useful because it can inform what those what the wise moves to make are in any given moment. By the way, you can have a conversation about technology use with your wife that doesn't involve lecturing her about uh, that that she ought to meditate. You 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 guys can talk about tech hygiene without you know getting into. whatever the fix gonna, fix is going to be it's a use, it's a it's an important thing to discuss if you think it's getting in the way of your relationship um, and then one last thing you 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 said with a lot of confidence that you know meditation will work i just want to urge a little bit of humility there because it may not i mean like what do we know i mean uh, you, you and i have gotten a lot out of meditation clearly um but we both know it's not a panacea um and um i still do lots of dumb things that I think mindfulness could help me with if I was doing a better job at applying mindfulness to the thing. Um, but uh, here we are. I still eat mindlessly and I check my phone too much. I think I'd, I'm doing a better job of both of those things than I would otherwise be doing. But, um, you know, I think again, I, th- I urge humility because it, it, it may or may not work. Just because it's working for you doesn't mean it definitely will work for somebody else. So it's a great question. And I again, I want to make sure I'm not coming off as being Golding here because I'm not. I mean, your 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 motivation is you want to be useful. I'm just of the view that it's not going to be useful to tell people to meditate. All right, let's talk condiments. Um, 
<laughs> this is an unusual guest for us, but I, I think nonetheless you're going to get a lot out of it. His name is Scott Norton. He's the co-founder of Sir Kensington's. You may have heard of them. I'm not a big condiment guy, but they make um, – they call themselves the premier producers of all-natural ketchup, mayo, and mustard. Um, and they, they come in these, like, fancy containers. Um, uh, Scott is a really interesting guy. He's been named by Fast Company as one of the most creative people in business, and he, Forbes listed him as one of their 30 under 30. Um, so he's got a really interesting background. He's engaged in a kind of un- quirky business, but doing really well. You know, the condiment business is a big business. So how do you bring mindfulness to bear in a big business where you're an upstart and you're trying to, you know, deal with the Heinzes of the world? And also, as a, I'm interested in this, given that I'm now in this un- unforeseen position of being in a leadership role with a startup company, uh, how do you bring mindfulness into the workplace? So we'll talk all- about all that uh, with the man. Scott Norton. Here he is. How did a ketchup dude start meditating? <laughs> uh, or how did a meditator become a ketchup? Oh, dude? was it the other way around? Well, it's it's. Uh, I, I I came to meditation when I was about fifteen. Oh wow! And but I haven't been consistent. You were a very different fifteen-year-old than me. <laughs> I came to breaking my neighbor's windows at fifteen, and then uh, more serious crimes after that. <laughs> I will, well, I also had my run-ins with the law okay. as a young, you know, precocious skateboarder, and uh, you grew up in San Francisco. I did at yeah. San, San Francisco and the Bay Area. Gotcha. And um, which is, I think, kind of known for you know an interest in you know, Buddhism and Eastern philosophy in general. Sure. But were your parents hippies? You know, they they weren't at all. Actually, they were both East Coast transplants, and uh, but I was like probably so many teenagers uh stressed and anxious and was kind of an outsider and my mother actually recommended insight meditation really and yeah so she said you know there's this uh this buddhist center down in our town in redwood city which is where i grew up and i went there and i really enjoyed it and i felt like it was a place i could have meaningful interesting conversations and i was just kind of i was just kind of open to anything um and I met, I started meditating there, but I really didn't continue the practice at all. And it wasn't the kind of place that taught you how to meditate, so to speak. It was more like you'd come there and you'd meditate and then it was over. And I guess I was maybe 15, so I didn't quite understand how to keep keep the questions going. And then I uh, – so I actually then much later in life, um, just about two years ago, when I was going through another really stressful period, decided – to give it another shot and decided, you know, this was something that I always identified as enjoying meditation experience. I always identified it as someone that was, um, reflective and through some, some good friends. So one of your previous guests, uh, Jesse Israel recommended that I talk to a Vedic meditation teacher and and that's how I got back into it. So that's what you're doing now, Vedic meditation. It is, yes. Can you just describe for folks what that what you do in your mind in Vedic meditation? Yeah, so so Vedic meditation is a form of mantra meditation. And it's uh it's most simply repeating what could be described as a a spokenless sound in your mind um, over and over again. And that is that is essentially all that it is as a meditation practice. And obviously 
there's there's more detail to it than that in terms of preparation, in terms of um, how you sit and what environment is good for that type of meditation. But it really is as simple as that. It is simple as as repeating a mantra. And and uh, I don't want to use the word necessarily focusing on the mantra, but always as the mind naturally does wander, moving back to the mantra and and remembering the mantra. The the most famous version of mantra meditation is the most famous variety is probably transcendental meditation Mm -hmm. where they recommend people do 20 minutes twice a day. What what does your teacher recommend and what do you actually do? Well, so I'll I'll answer that that question in a minute. And actually it was transcendental meditation that was first recommended to me. By uh, Jesse Israel? Well, it was by someone else. It was by a a mentor of mine. Ah, I see. And so I got really interested in transcendental and and like these kind of things, I went to Jesse and he was like, hey, actually you should give this Vedic a try. Um, so, and I'm definitely not the expert in defining one versus the other, but, uh, very similarly, my, my teacher does recommend 20 minutes twice a day. And that is what a good day looks like. Uh, though I will be completely honest that not all days look like that, but I do, I do always get the morning in. Really? Well, that's pretty good. I think it is pretty good. You know, it is pretty good. 20 minutes for somebody who's running a a startup. I mean, like that's a lot. Yeah, I it, think you should give yourself some credit. And oh. you've got a nine-month-old kid at home. Yeah, thanks, thanks. And I, well, I have a really understanding and supportive wife. Uh-huh. Um, so yeah. she's tremendous. She enables me to do that. That's great. Well, uh, she probably you're probably less of a jerk. <laughs> enlightened self-interest. I hope so. Yeah, I hope so. Um, but I, although you, know, you don't it, strike me as somebody who has the capacity to be much of a jerk, but I mean, I just met you. Well, yeah, we we just met, and you know, if I'm if I'm sloppy, then yeah, I turn into a jerk. Um, and, but hopefully, hopefully I don't. And so it's actually funny because I think it is one of the very few things in life that I would get up 20 minutes early for, Mm. you know, and it, it has been something that like so many people, and I'm, I'm sure your listeners are a wide variety of, uh, people in terms of their meditation experience. Maybe they're curious about it. Maybe they're very seasoned. But it's not something that it's it's not the kind of thing you should you can or should measure return on investment mm-hmm. for, right? Mm-hmm. It's not like okay, do this and then we'll get that. And I think it, it, so many things in life, especially as a business person, I think about return on investment, and I think about what am I investing in this and what am I getting out of it. And it's actually what's so beautiful to me is it's a it's a time where I have the permission, right, for myself and for my coach to say, don't look at this. As something that you have a measurable amount of resources that go in, and a measurable measurable amount of resources that come out, and so it's, how do you justify it? I, I justify it by a recognition that the people around me who have embraced meditation seem to have a an air about them that makes me want to be around them. So the the person, the mentor of mine. Uh, a woman named Sue Neville, who who recommended meditation to me, uh, Jesse, you know, a dear friend and someone I I count on in times of challenge, and other people in my life that are meditators. I recognize that they uh, they have a certain calmness, but also an intensity and an empathy to them, and and I think that there's 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 something in common. I also think it simply just feels good, <laughs> right? So it's not like I could say like, okay, you know, at four. 4 10 p.m. later that day i rec- i reacted 
like this. But if I hadn't meditated, I would have reacted like this. It doesn't work like that at all. But there, there is definitely a feeling of relief and a feeling of uh, contentment that can come with meditation, but not necessarily predictably or not necessarily consistently. And so I think just knowing that it's really about dedicating yourself to the regularity and and the feelings will come as they do is, is, is sort of a empowering experience for me. Out of curiosity, who's your teacher? His name is Hunter Cressman. Hunter Cressman. Yeah. Not a name I know, but now I do. Mm-hmm. Um, Great guy. It's, I bet. Um, most meditation teachers are. Um, the thing you said before that I wanted to loop back to was that you were having a particularly stressful time two mm. years ago. What mm-hmm. was the content of the stress? Yeah, so so I, I started a company around seven years ago uh, called Sir Kensington's. I called it a startup, but is it still a startup? It's probably not still a startup. Well, how, how does one define startup? Right? I don't I mean, know. I would, I would say the United States of America is very much still a startup. Well, compared right? to, yeah, France. Yeah. <laughs> well, France is – the new regime is just as much a startup in some ways. But th- we have more of a startup mentality. So I guess that would be – no offense to France, but I think America definitely still has that startup culture, yep. whereas maybe France is a little more set in its ways. Um, again, no offense to the French out there. You can, you can diss the French on this podcast. Okay. <laughs> I minored in French in, in college, actually, and still can't speak it. Anyway, carry so, on. So, yeah, we definitely still are a startup in kind of our attitude and the way we think about um, you know, forming our team and being – being outsiders, being a maverick when it comes to what we do and, and really inventing our own solutions. So I think in that way, we're very much a startup. And um, and startups, as you know, all business is challenging because you're trying to move something from point A to point B, right? Your company, your team, the market, customers, and it's really challenging to change minds on that individual basis and on the organizational basis and on the cultural and societal basis. It's a lot of emotional energy that goes into that. To change people's attitudes about ketchup? Yeah, about ketchup, frankly, about anything. Right. Um, but people have – I mean, I, I, I was – my tongue was slightly in my cheek there, but people do have pretty hardcore attitudes oh, yeah. about ketchup. Oh, absolutely. Like unexamined attitudes. Like, yeah, I exactly. just – I use this. Unexamined is a, gr- is a great way to put it because um, – you know, food in general, what we grow up with is what we know yep. and what we like. And ketchup is one of the first foods that, that children eat that you develop flavor memories around. Mm-hmm. And because there's only one major brand that people know, it is exactly that. It's, is Heinz uh, the only brand that people know? Really? Well, you could you could probably name a couple. I'm not much of a ketchup guy. You know, it's the big one though. And yeah. and most importantly, the other – if you could name other brands or store brands – they probably look and taste exactly like Heinz, and they probably have the same ingredients as Heinz. So when you decided to take on Heinz, were they, like, you know, angry? Uh, we didn't hear much from them, frankly. Yeah. they. I mean, they probably thought we were just a couple of foolish college kids that didn't know what they were doing, which we were. <laughs> uh, and then I think as we got bigger, maybe they reacted to us or, you know, thought through their products differently, but we didn't. we didn't hear much from them. Uh, and we always sort of focused on doing what we were doing. But I, when I started, when I started the company, I ran all the the marketing, you know, from the branding to how we would communicate and win customers, and what our strategy would be around communication. And and it got to a point where, while I was the founder of the business, and I really enjoyed a lot of aspects of of that marketing role, I wasn't actually the best person suited to do all of that. Uh-huh. And we were looking for a lot of expertise 
Um, and, and I was out of my depth for, both in, in terms of abilities and I love to learn. So it wasn't so much that it was knowledge I didn't have, but it were interests that I didn't have. And I didn't actually have the, the will to, um, or the interest in sort of achieving some of those capabilities that were going to be necessary to get at this to the next level. So you were stuck in a job where you had a lot of responsibilities you didn't want. And that was stressful. It, some form, some form of that. Yeah, but it, it takes some self awareness to know that these are not your strong suits, and to cry uncle. Well, it takes some. It takes some self awareness, and also without perfect self awareness, which I didn't have, it takes other people around you telling you. Yeah, you know, and it takes that. You have to be willing to listen, though. Yeah, you you, you certainly do. Um, and I was asking, actually, how do I give my gifts to this company that I started and that I love? And what is it that I want to learn? And what is it this company needs to succeed? It was within a lot of those questions that I took some time and 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 had the space to come to meditation, actually. Because what I realized was one of the things that I lacked completely was reflective time. Um, and that isn't to say that me- meditation is used to reflect on topics, right? Um, but but it, it, it was something that allowed me to slow down. And move from fast forward, which is the kind of the default startup mode, mm-hmm. to play, right, mm-hmm. in terms of speed. And when you're at the speed of play, uh, I think, which meditation helped me achieve, then all of a sudden you get better perspective on things. And you have the time to be more reflective, uh, to have better self-assessment. And so I'm really glad that I came to meditation in that in that period. And that isn't to say that meditation like solved any problems in that regard, but I think it will help me. It will. It has helped me, and it will help me navigate uh, new challenges and and really see around the bend in the future. So, so are you still st- saddled with responsibilities you don't want, or did that get sorted out? That did get sorted out. Okay, yeah. so, but yeah. you don't think meditation was why the problems got Mm-mm. fixed? Yeah, it's, it's it's never one thing, and I, and I I, I want to be very uh, careful about seeing meditation as a, like a specific tool in the toolbox, right? I don't want to see it as a panacea. Well, you're on a podcast called 10% Happier, so we, we don't do panaceas around here. Okay. <laughs> you're in a safe place. Okay, good. You can yeah. diss the French if it was not over promise. <laughs> okay, yeah. If it was 100% happier, then, yes. then that's a yes. different story. But yes. yeah, Deepak ten, Chopra may have one called ten, that. I 10% would happier? Hell yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So um, why did you want to get in the ketchup business at all? Yeah. Given the dominance of the it's so random, kinds. right? So random. So, um, I uh, I always love the I always love the idea that that starting a company could create a platform for making some kind of change, right? Some kind of change in society, um, some kind of change in people's lives um, that you interact with your coworkers, and some kind of change for yourself. Right as a as a journey of learning, and uh, so condiments naturally follows. Well, I I love I've always loved food, and while it is totally random, we we realized that this is now back in two thousand eight that food was changing in America, and that all of a sudden things that as you described were unexamined were being examined. So all of a sudden, people were looking at organic dairy, they were looking at grass fed beef, they were looking at cage free eggs, and younger generation was starting to ask, where does this food come from before it ends up on supermarket shelves? And uh, and across the entire supermarket, there was one area that hadn't really been looked at at all, 
condiments and specifically ketchup hadn't changed in like 70 years. So the big companies spent a lot of time lowering the costs, asking how do we make this cheaper, but none of them were asking how do we make this better. And so this was an opportunity. It didn't really start as a business opportunity, but more so like a curious, huh, that's really weird. Would it even pot? Like, how do you make ketchup? Would it be possible to make one that's actually better? Would people reject it? Like, how would you how would you make it so that it made sense? And so, bizarrely, of course, and I, I, I always say that you know, opportunity knocks on the side door more often than it knocks on the front door. And I would agree with that. And I, I figured, you know, if I'm going to start a company, it'll probably be in technology. And no, not at all. Like all of a sudden, this ketchup thing is something that's you know, I'm starting to think about more and more. And we we have this realization that if even if we are able to make a, a better ketchup, um, no one would know that it's better. And even if it is the best ketchup in the world, no one would necessarily just grab it and try it. And and people will they'll eat with their eyes before they taste with their tongues. So part of it was the challenge and the fun of asking how would we create something that would earn its place in culture and people would really want to welcome into their lives. And that's where the concept of the personality of Sir Kensington came from. Because we said, all right, if every ketchup is in plastic, let's be dramatically different and let's be glass, right? Uh, more premium. We'll go with the fact that we're using whole tomatoes and the, you know, the real organic sugar. And of course, we won't use any high fructose corn syrup. And so along with that, if that's what's inside the bottle, well, the bottle itself should be really nice and should feel like it's something special. And instead of being squeezing, right, indiscriminately kind of, you know, put on people's plates, let's be scooping ketchup. That's how we started. And rather than the ubiquitous Americana of most ketchups out there, we said, let's be English. Is, is your ketchup healthy or is it healthier? Well, so remember yeah. that th- you were probably not even alive in the 80s when when ketchup was designated as a vegetable. As a vegetable. And that people, yeah. Oh, there was an uproar. Um, it, we, is yours closer to the vegetable on the, on the spectrum? It is closer to the vegetable. It's uh, instead of instead of using, you know, only concentrate, which is basically really, really um, rendered homogenous kind of cooked tomatoes. We, we do, of course, cook our tomatoes, but we start with whole tomatoes. And we blend that with paste. So you actually get a texture that's more similar to the tomato and a taste that's more similar to the tomato. So it is ketchup that tastes like actual tomatoes. Mm. It still tastes like ketchup, but it's definitely going to taste closer to the actual thing. Um, and similarly, we have less sugar and less salt. But uh, to say something is healthy or healthier is, is frankly a very loaded term yeah. because nutrition is – you know, the jury's out on a lot of things. There's a lot of pseudoscience out there. And ultimately, you know, people want to eat what makes them feel good. Well, you give your baby your ketchup, I guess. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah okay. I already have. Yeah. Okay. Um, so when you decided to do this, it kind of reminds me of those that Tom and Tom lemonade yeah. uh, folks. And they also went to Brown. Oh, okay. So I, okay. Yeah. So they were, they were actually probably somewhere in my mental like universe of hey it's possible to do something like this i remember hearing one of the toms in the 90s at a talk he was giving in boston saying something to the effect of if i had known how much work this was going to be before we started i wouldn't have done it <laughs> to take on coke and pepsi yeah. and, you know to go into the most crowded and vicious aisle in the supermarket and you're this is what you're doing yeah so it ha- ha- has it worked it has it has worked so we um now it was it is a tremendous amount of work 
And actually, that's one of the learnings, right? And and people look at entrepreneurs and they look at startups and they look at successful companies and it appears to be so easy, right? Oh, the product is great and the team is killer and they put it all together and it's this rocket ship. Well, I can tell you that inside, it doesn't look like that. Success is not a straight line. And there's so many challenges and it takes so much grit and tenacity and that the in your in your mind getting to the goal is a straight line from A to B, um, but in reality there's so many challenges and so many setbacks. So we now are, um, you know, we're nationally distributed in grocery stores, and Whole Foods is one of our biggest customers. To give you an idea of kind of where we span, and we also work with fantastic restaurants across the country and meal kits. And earlier this year, we were actually acquired by Unilever. Oh, um, nice! Yeah, that must and, have been a good payday. It, I mean, it it's important for a number of different reasons. So for our team, for ourselves, for our investors, it was obviously great because it created that benefit and that stability. Uh, and also, they are long-term thinkers just as we are. And they're a values and a mission-driven company. Similarly, asking the question of not just what is good for business today, but what's going to be good for business and what's going to be good for society later on. And when we when we first started talking to them, um, you know, we weren't actually intending to sell the business at that time, but it was the um, the focus that they have on the legacy and of the role of food to do good. That that's really what gave us the confidence to move forward with them. Much more of our conversation right after this quick break. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile. Third line free on essentials via monthly bill, credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. The weather is getting warmer. Time to ditch my jackets and sweaters for shorts and tees. I used to waste my money on clothing that would only last one season. That was until I found Quince. Now I've got high-quality pieces that never go out of style that I will be wearing year after year. Quince has all the seasonal must-haves like 100% European linen shirts from $30, performance polos, and versatile flow-knit activewear. The best part, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands by partnering directly with top factories, Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes the savings on to us. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. I just made a big order at Quince.com. I got two pairs of sweatpants that I've just had for like a week, and I already love them. I'm wearing them all the time. Sweatpants are a huge deal to me uh, because I work from home. And I want to look reasonably good, you know, in front of my wife and stuff, but uh, I want to be comfortable. And uh, the Quince sweatpants uh, do the trick. For me, the bottom line is uh, they've got good-looking stuff at low prices. Not a bad recipe. You should go ahead and upgrade your wardrobe. Go to Quince.com slash happier for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash happier to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash happier. 
Indeed, used by over 3 million businesses for hiring, where business owners and HR professionals can post job openings with screener questions, then sort, review, and communicate with candidates from an online dashboard. Learn more at Indeed.com slash hire. There's a lot coming at you right now. Turmoil, tweets, an insane amount of chatter. I'm Brad Milkey with ABC News, and I am here to throw you a lifeline. It's a new podcast called Start Here, where our experts give you on-the-ground access to the biggest stories of the day. We're going to give you some context, some clarity among the chaos. 20 minutes every weekday. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, and start here. I want to amplify a point you were making about the, and then I want to ask you a question. Um about the stress of being in a startup. About two years ago, I co-founded a, a, a startup also called 10% Happier. We uh-huh. teach meditation through an app. And it's like a rolling existential crisis. Yes. It's, it's constantly yeah. on the cusp of death. Uh-huh. And um, are you are we doing the right thing? Are we going to make it through the next round of funding? It's just always stress. Yeah. And, and well, but it's awesome. It's a kind of amazing adventure at the same time. Absolutely. And I think, you know, use this word stress. And so when I... What I try and, you know, conceptually think about what I try and tell my team is stress is actually a choice, right? So there are inter- there are external pressures that are being put on you and your company, right? So phone calls that you make that don't get returned and um, unexpected challenges and changes that maybe, you know, drain your bank account or a setback. You have an employee leave or something. Someone does something stupid. Those are all, you know, that's objective reality right there. And it's actually going to be up to you whether those pressures turn into stress. And yes, of course, running a startup is stressful, but that's also, that's part of the, like the yoga of it is that you have to realize that the journey is the reward and that every opportunity that you have or every, every piece of pressure that's going to create stress is an opportunity to gain a little bit of objective perspective on it. And a little bit of ground and a little bit of perspective. And that's, I think, what allows anyone to do it from, for an extended period of time and to, to have a sustained and continuous energy with it. Um, you know, doing this for seven years, it has been incredibly stressful. And, of course, it, even to this day, right, it, we go through periods of fat and periods of lean, periods that are, that are less stressful and periods that are more stressful. But we always try and tell ourselves and we always try and tell our team is – what feels like friction is actually polish and that those challenges you can choose whether they're going to rattle you or whether you're going to grow stronger. Let me go back to journey as the reward because this is the type of saying that gets tossed around a lot. And I, I, I mean, it's indisputably true that, that, you know, the, you only live, you only get right now. Mm-hmm. It's always right now. Mm-hmm. By the same token, you do need to set and achieve goals, and you, yes. you do need to make sure you you know you're not so focused on journeying they're just walking in a big circle all the time. So how do you balance that? And how do you how do you how do you not get so hung up on the goal and then like try and, and gunning in that direction and getting everyone in your team to go in that direction that you miss you know like your actual life right now? Yeah. Well, it's not that the goal is unimportant. Um, but it's to recognize that your, your emotional state at that goal, really, really just cracking a problem 
is just an an invitation to bigger and more difficult problems, <laughs> right? So you'll certainly set a goal for yourself, but it's not like that's the end, right? You're going to have more to do from that point on. And so, well, you probably thought when you sold to Unilever that your life was going to be like you know like all roses, but now, now there are a million new problems. Absolutely, and we te- and we we always I always tell myself these stories, and that's that's part of what you know keeps us going is we tell these stories, and 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 it's it seems like it's going to be great, and it is, and then it gets hard again, yeah. right? Like everything. Now, when I say the journey is the reward, that doesn't mean that goals are unimportant. It's actually the goals that put us on those journeys, right? It's like it, it's the mountaintop. It's wonderful to be at the top of the mountain and see the vista and bask in that. And I think there is definitely times for pride, right, and and times for celebration that are at those points of goals and at those points of success. But I guess what I'm saying is is – it's important to not think in a binary way, like you trudge your way through something and you should be unhappy or you should be in times of stress right until that goal is achieved and then everything is you know, solved. It's just the same exact thing as thinking, oh, if I get this new object or if I go on this next vacation, then I'll be happy. You know, then I just want something and when I get that thing that I want, I'll be happy. No, it's just, it's just completely temporary. This is uh, partly what the Buddha meant when he talked about suffering, you know, the Buddha's first thing he said was life is suffering. A lot of people mistake that for meaning like life is going to suck always and forever. But he just meant that if you, um, uh, well, he meant a lot of things, but one of the things he meant, uh, as I understand it is, uh, that if you live your life expecting that, um, the next dopamine hit is going to do it for you forever, you're in for some serious disappointment. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so, so goals are important, but but it's also really important to to enjoy that journey and and to recognize that that setbacks are not not killers. So let me you, you talked before about being a values driven company, uh-huh. and you've you've even talked about um, imagine like when you talked about uh, this is from an article I read about you that when you're talking when you're trying to think about the company's mission you you've said imagine you're designing a religion mm, talk about yeah. that yeah yeah that was from a recent one that was a a talk that i gave i didn't know they would write that down and put it in there but you know we are we are such emotional creatures humans we think we are rational but we're actually just really good at rationalizing you know we have this logical layer that is in many ways an illusion to us but really we govern ourselves based on gut and and based on feel. And so many things in life that we we want, I, I don't think we actually know why we want them. But I think that there are things that religion offers that companies essentially and organizations have co-opted in order to grow and succeed. And so let's give an example of that. I think, for instance, one of the things religion offers is a a, a connection to something bigger than oneself. Right. And when you and I know and I know it's a very different thing, but when you step into a BMW, right, or when you put on a Zara jacket, you are connecting to something bigger than just that piece of fabric. You think that people when people put certain things on their cheeseburger that, that, that they're connecting to something spiritual? Or is that is so? That a- it's, okay, so we we should be careful with some of these words here, but <laughs> but okay, so spiritual, right? Yeah. So what does what does that mean? You know, so there's there is I think along with connecting better, uh, greater than yourself, there's also this concept of community, right? 
and people like me and a sense of tribe that I belong to. You know, walking I was I walked from 59th Street station up to up to here to the ABC studios and I saw two people that were going in different directions wearing the TCS marathon uh, New York City marathon medals that they ran yesterday and two strangers high-fived each other right that they've never met before because they both participated in this uh, this marathon together this cultural event together and that connection bound them together in that moment and gave them the sense of meaning so when I when when you ask okay does does eating you know a little bit of ketchup on your burger is that spiritual well there is something about food and identity that are very much drawn together. So, of course, with the food that we eat physically becomes our bodies, but also the food we eat defines where we are culturally, where we are in society, what we identify with, what we grew up with, um, right from soul food to you know, what our ancestors ate. And there's a lot of identity in food. And food is, is one actually great way to connect to something bigger than ourselves and participate in that. And – you could say that that is a spiritual connection, right? It may have nothing to do with a uh, – like an all-governing force, right, that so many religions do. But I guess I, I do think that there is something that great organizations do to – in the same way that religions do, which is give people a sense of connection, community, a sense of meaning. And especially what they have is they have beliefs, they have texts, uh, and they have standards of behavior, and I, I, there's whether it's the, the laws that govern the United States or the commandments of, uh, you know, Christianity, for instance, or whether it's the values that a company espouses, all of these things are kind of these, these texts that you see in place um, that give people a sense of here's what we are and here's what we aren't. And that, that binds them together. Um, and that is essentially what culture is. And so when you talk about the company being value, did you use the term values driven? Yeah. Uh, what, do, what does that mean? So especially in food, there has been a lot of unscrupulous behavior over the last 70 years by food companies, especially coming out of World War II, where companies uh, that produce food, we believe, have a responsibility to society and a responsibility to the environment that is different than a lot of other industries because – what we make actually becomes part of people's physical bodies and has a relationship to human health and human nutrition. And it also has, in many ways, an outsized effect on what our food system and our, our natural resources look like when it terms, comes to carbon emissions. Um, across the board, there's a lot of responsibility that a food company, uh, we believe, should have. And a lot of food companies have actually successful food companies have taken a strategy over those last seven year, uh, 70 years since World War II of asking the question, how can we make products that are more addictive, that are as addictive as possible? And so there's a lot of work that's been done to make sure that it, once you eat a Dorito, you want to have another Dorito. From the color to the texture to the taste in your tongue to the fact that when you crunch it, the vibrations move from your jaw muscle into your uh, into your ears and give you that sort of synesthesia. There is a lot of work that goes into making products more addictive. And so in a lot of ways, the values that have driven uh, food companies have been purely oriented towards consumption, purely oriented towards shareholder value. And so as a as a values driven company, um, 
And I don't want to by any means say that, you know, A, we're perfect or B, we're the only people doing this because we're actually a very small part of a much bigger food movement that shares the idea that food companies have a responsibility to human health and nutrition and to the environment. Does it hinder so, your ability to compete? Well, the the beautiful thing now is because of the internet and because of people's demands for transparency, that has changed what customers and consumers are looking for. So it actually enables us to compete. Because before, people didn't necessarily know the impacts personally or on the environment of what quote-unquote bad food or big food might do. Now, if you have a Netflix subscription, it's saying, oh, do you want to watch Fast Food Nation or Fat Sick and Nearly Dead or I guess not Fast Food Nation but Supersize Me you know, or – uh, there's there's so much in culture, right? Michael Pollan's wonderful writing about this. Uh, you know, if you subscribe to the the New Yorker, obviously that's a bubble in and of itself. But every couple of issues, there's a big piece about food and food culture and a lot of the change that's happening in here. So actually, what people are starting to look for, thankfully, are companies that take a similar tack and a similar bent. And so when we talk about being values driven, that means that you know, number one, our product values. If it's not food, it doesn't belong in our food, right? So no chemicals or um, synthetic sweeteners or anything like that. If we don't love it, we don't launch it. So this is something that really comes from a sense of personal authorship that we really want to be excited about, not necessarily something that was developed and tests well in consumer groups but we don't really believe in. And then we're only as good as the companies that we keep. So um, we, we need good partners to be good partners, and that's the way that we treat our suppliers and the way that we treat our customers with a focus on the, the relationship rather than the transaction. So the, the, these are the things that you know our product values as a company. And then we also have our core values that really govern our, our behavior in our day-to-day life um, that I can go into as well, um, or you can see by Googling us. But that those – you know those things that govern our our products and those things that govern our behavior. That's what m- makes us values led. Um, and is it hard in the daily hurly burly? I'm specifically interested now in terms of like the the atmosphere in the office and how you work with your suppliers. Basically, just being good human beings. Is it hard to be nice in an environment where you're under you've got a business? To, Absolutely, yeah. it's extremely hard. It's a huge source of tension, and. Uh, with everything, right, there's this 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 dialectic between what, with team members, right? You want to make sure that everyone, uh, let's say, is both fairly compensated and also you're doing the right thing responsible to your investors and their coworkers and now our owners, right? And that's just one example. I mean, how like how long should you give someone if they're failing to improve in a, in a job where they're supposed to be contributing, right? And you might say that doing the right thing by them is giving them more time and giving them more tools and giving them ben- the benefit of the doubt. Uh, and you might say that the right thing to do for the organization, for their coworkers, and even for them, is to determine that it's not a fit for the organization, that they're not a fit. And, you know, there's always this dialectic and there's there's always this tension, healthy tension between the two. But what these values do is they don't give you an answer but they give you guidelines and they give you mental frameworks to make these decisions. I always tell my team that our values are tools for them to make decisions with. So, um, you know, our first value is that our secret ingredient is people. And so when it comes to a people challenge, 
we've done a lot of thinking about what that really means in detail, but how, how do we make sure that, you know, above all, that we recognize that all of our results and all of our successes come from our people? Uh, or, for instance, our fourth value is think long term. So how do we think not only about the first order implications of a decision we're making, but of the second and third order implications? And we we'll, may create sales this year, but what, what are the results are going to be next year? You know, is it repeatable? Is this something that we can build on? You know, those impact both how we treat each other, but they also impact our strategy. Has, has your meditation practice had any bearing on your ability to embody these values or, or, or none at all? Yeah, I think my meditation practice has, has helped with these because, as I said before, it slows me down. And so it offers more of an opportunity for reflection. And also, I think what, what meditation you know, fundamentally is, is a tool for helping, understand, helping you understand the world objectively and seeing the world as it truly is, right? Experiencing on a sensory basis, uh, watching the mind and uh and feeling what the body is feeling and you know m- mantra meditation may not be as focused on that as insight meditation or other forms of meditation are which i also kind of practice at at other odd times but when you are able to achieve an objective understanding of something that is when you can make the best decisions yes yeah and insight meditation is basically or vipassana the word uh, that is used uh the ancient word seeing clearly Mm -hmm. you know that's the point exactly so uh, when you when you have that that clarity when you when you see clearly when you when you have a practice in getting outside of yourself and achieving some kind of objective perspective decisions become um much more likely to be right uh is there anything that i should have asked you that i didn't ask you hmm uh Man, not, not that I can think of. People want to learn more about you. Where they, where can they go? And you and your company, where they. Where, oh, great! This so, is the plug zone. Yeah. So uh, if you uh, if you are interested in trying Sir Kensington's, uh, go to wherever fine condiments are sold. So go down to Whole Foods or go to your local supermarket and ask if they have it. And if they don't, ask them to bring it in. <laughs> and then uh, you can find us on you know online at sirkensingtons.com but websites aren't so interesting anymore so follow us at sir kensingtons on instagram for amazing meal inspiration and food pictures sweet um, what about you specifically do you have your oh, own yeah i'm uh i'm swh norton on twitter and uh scottnorton.org if you want to see my speaking engagements and where i'm headed next cool uh, Scott, thank you. It's an education. I feel like I know much more about the condiment world than I ever did. Oh, you're just getting started. Yeah, you're know. at the tip of the iceberg. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thank you, sir. Great thank job. You. Thank you so it. much, Dan. Okay, that does it for another edition of the 10% Happier Podcast. If you liked it, please take a minute to subscribe, rate us. Also, if you want to suggest topics you think we should cover or guests that we should bring in, hit me up on Twitter, at Dan B. Harris. Importantly, I want to thank uh, the people who produce this podcast, Lauren Efron, Josh Cohan, and the rest of the folks here at ABC who helped make this thing possible. We have tons of other podcasts. You can check them out at abcnewspodcasts.com. I'll talk to you next Wednesday. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. 
For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books. I'm Shimon Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense that you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost. But now, I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully, no one will die on station night. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.